Please hang up or ask the caller to stop it. <laughs> yes, I'm recording this in case it wasn't completely obvious. Um, so, let me go ahead and start here. Um, hello, my name is Craig Andera. Today is Friday, December 9th, 2011, and this is Think Girl is the podcast. Today, I'm talking with Justin Getlin. Hi, Justin. Hi, Craig. Um, okay, before we even get started, I have to ask um, one of the two most important questions we're going to have here. Um, through the magic of post-production editing, people uh, heard a song play as the show was starting. Uh, it might even be playing right now. Uh, you were the one that picked that song. What is it? I picked it? Yeah, I'm saying, pick a song for the beginning oh, of the show. Yeah. Uh, Jet City Woman. Jet City Woman. All right, Queensryche fan. All right, cool. All right, good deal. <laughs> well, now we've got that out of the way. People know what they what they heard coming in. But um, um, so I suppose I ought start ought to start by asking you, what is your job at Relevance? Wow, um, that's hard to answer actually. Uh, so my title is uh, co-founder now. I think officially, mm-hmm. um, uh, for the last two and a half years, I've been the CEO. But uh, as we're transitioning. The company to its new structure, uh, I'm sort of um, letting that title evaporate from me so it can condensate onto somebody else. <laughs> uh, that's the best way to put it right now. Yeah. So my job is um, directing the various uh, uh, activities of the company that uh, that lead towards strategic growth. I think that's a, a fancy way of saying I explore. You explore. Okay, cool. Um, so... Um... Uh, so, so you and I actually met. So basically, everybody, Justin is my boss's boss. So here I am interviewing him on this. This might this might actually be the first episode that goes out. Um, I had a chance to talk to Alan last week, um, but we talked about some stuff that's not quite ready to drop yet. So I thought maybe we might hold on to that. So this, I think, this will be our inaugural episode. So it's actually good that I'm talking to you, the there man you at the top of the food pyramid, or at the bottom. I'm not sure which way. <laughs> It all depends on your point of view exactly. and whether or not you're touchy feely about it. Right. Um, so yeah. So this is cool. So I, mean, I kind of my thinking here is, you know, we have uh, a chance to. Cause I I think that the company is made up of really interesting people, and uh, I have all sorts of fun conversations with them. And I thought, well, <laughs> yeah, I could basically pick somebody at random every Friday um, and have a conversation, record it, put it out there, and I think it'd be something that people would be interested in listening to. So. Uh, but still, it's. I think this would be good if we get this one out there, possibly. Yeah. Episode number one, uh, we'll see. I'm always willing to be the guinea pig for public humiliation. All right, good. Yeah, and we both, and as you as you know, but everybody else might not, you and I met at uh, a company named Developmentor, uh, where we were both instructors, and so public humiliation was essentially our our job, right? Well, it was certainly our job interview, if not our job. So. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, I don't know if, if people are aware, but the, that was, so the... Developmental had a very, very rigorous, um, really, I think a better term for it was audition process, right? Because that's really what it was, is they were looking for people with pretty specific um, personality types. There was more than one, but there were specific ones, people that could get up in front of a room. And uh, I mean, I remember, I don't think, I, I think there might not be many more Certainly the, the audition, the what was the first thing you did? Like there was a bunch of steps, but the one where you actually get up and talk in front so of instructors for the first time. That, that for me, I don't know how it was for everybody else. For me, that was lunch in the middle of a gorilla. So I was attending a gorilla, and then I went to the home office, and you know, it's over the crown. The, so the gorillas are the G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A, the, right. the, the big multi-instructor events they used to do. Yeah. And so all 
uh, all of the instructors from the gorilla, but one, and then anybody else who was around the office came to lunch and watched me talk while Ron ate my lunch five feet in front of me. <laughs> that's right. Ron ate your lunch while you were talking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's why they, one of the reasons they call him Scary Ron. That's Scary Ron. Yeah, so that that was probably the most nervous I've ever been in my life was immediately before walking into the room and and giving a talk about the basics of com to Don Box, you know, Brent Rector, Chris Sells, Keith Brown, and maybe two or three pe- other people off of my bookshelf. <laughs> yep, exactly. It was like it was the personification of my bookshelf at the time sitting in front of me, including Don who who is asleep in the back of the room. Yep. Uh, for me and uh, uh, yeah I mean that was that was brutal I was not nearly as nervous standing at the altar as I was walking into that room uh, I I don't know if my wife will listen to this but I think that that's definitely true for me as well like my wedding I was like this is great and there I was exactly like, yeah <laughs> and there I was like I am going to be exposed as the biggest fraud in the history of computer science <laughs> well see now this is interesting because for me I was only nervous until the moment I started speaking Right, I think I have a, a genetic defect where if I'm if I'm t- in the act of talking, then it, I don't know. I'm in another space. It was only right before, as soon as I started. I mean, I was arguing with Ron about things he was saying. You know, right? It was uh, it's that's weird. So I, I was I was nervous right up until the I stopped right because I don't know about you. I think that prior I can't remember if it was prior to me or after me when people were supposed to give a presentation on their own material. But when I was doing it, I had to give a presentation out of the material I was going to be hired to teach. Right. And, of course, the author of that material was sitting in the front row. Right. And that part was nerve-wracking. As soon as they called off the the presentation piece and just started throwing questions at me, that's when I got comfortable mm-hmm. uh, because I was no longer – I no longer felt I was being judged on my grasp of somebody else's material. I thought I was being judged on my personality, and I'm always willing to be judged on my personality. <laughs> Are you really? I don't. In your case, I don't know if that's such a good policy. I, but that's part of my personality. Well, there you go. Completely ignorant of that fact. Right, right. Uh, no, Justin is a very charming person. Everyone, my boss's boss. Um, so, so, so after um, after Developmentor, we both worked there for a while. You were actually on staff. I was as a contractor. You, but you went off and did something else, right? And that something else was was relevance, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So I, Stu and I left Developmentor together uh, to start relevance. Um, uh, so we had, um, we quit uh, Developmentor within an hour of each other, <laughs> and um, uh, but we did not incorporate relevance for about two weeks after that. But it was pretty quick. I mean, we certainly had discussed it. Uh, it wasn't like we both quit within an hour without talking to each other and then went, hmm. <laughs> uh, since uh, for the listeners, Stu and I have known each other since 1991, and we're mm-hmm. talking about the year 2003 when Relevance was formed. So, mm-hmm. uh, and we've lived within a mile of each other for most of that time. So, yeah, we will definitely have Stu on at some point to give him a chance to refute anything you might want to say about him right now. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. the bromance it survives to this day. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what were the early days like? I mean, what, what how did you guys kind of? Because I mean, today we're about forty people. I mean, you've you've pulled in a number of our. I mean, uh, Tim Ewald also worked at uh, Developmentor, and he works here, and I work here. And so, what what was kind of the vector that went from there to here? Yeah, when we when we left Developmentor, we left um, largely because the two co-founders of that company had had a divorce um, that we weren't. Um, particularly enthralled with the way the company went after that. Um, I think it was 
uh, it was managed fine. It was the direction we weren't particularly happy about. And so we left and said to ourselves, you know, what is it that we want to do? And we knew that we were going to, you know, start a company together. Uh, and initially we really didn't know what it is we wanted to do other than to, um, I think the exact phrase was bestride the world as giants, uh, and, um, leverage, uh, what at that point was a really nice Rolodex, uh, of contacts into, you know, interesting work. And that interesting work started out being, uh, writing books, writing, uh, for online publications, training, um, we did a lot of uh, technical due diligence for venture capitalists in those early days. We have some good friends here in North Carolina in the VC industry, and uh, you know we would get sent on location, as it were, to go and investigate uh, companies' tech stacks and things mm-hmm. like that. So it was a very broad mix of um, work, and uh, along the way, of course, consulting popped up, uh, and we began to do consulting uh, more specifically. Uh, I spent about a year and a half as a Java security consultant. Uh, for a very large financial application um, mm-hmm. up in Richmond, mm-hmm. and um, you know, so we, we sort of went along that road for a good three or four years. But during that fourth year, at the beginning of that fourth year, and we're talking about oh, what is that? Oh six, oh seven. Now, um, uh, we realized that we wanted to actually build something. We didn't just want to do things, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Uh, we said, well, you know, it's time to build a team because a team is what's going to allow us. You know, the team itself is what we were trying to build. I should, I guess, is the way of putting it. Gotcha. Um, and we wanted to build a world-class team of awesome folks. And uh, so we put out the call and and we converted one. And we had, you know, a few friends who were contracting with us. And Glenn Vanderberg was an early person uh, who, um, if he'd just been more on the ball, he would have been employee number one. But Jason Rudolph, uh, <laughs> as is his want, was way more on the ball and beat him to the punch. Yeah. Uh, and so we started hiring and um, we've pretty much doubled in size every year since then. So, so three years from now, we'll be... 500 people or something, right? Uh, yeah, and four years after that, we'll be bigger than the galaxy. That's right. <laughs> we'll we'll solve that problem when we get to it. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's an agile process. We'll you've got it. You've got a team working on trans-dimensional black hole storage office space, something or other, right? <laughs> something. Uh, they they won't even tell me what it is though. So the NDA is pretty strict. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so I, one of the interesting things that happened kind of along the way was, um, and I don't actually know much of the story here, uh, but I remember when I was first getting involved with Relevance a uh, year and a half ago, uh, there was quite a bit of talk about the fact that we were or are a B corporation. Yeah. Um, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. I don't know too much about it. Um, yeah, let me give you a little bit of backstory about why uh, it mattered to me. Um uh, as an undergraduate in college, I was a double major in English and environmental science and policy. I am, uh, shh, don't tell anybody, uh, not a computer science major, um, although I did pay my way through school as a programmer, so I think that counts. Um, uh, but uh, I, as an undergraduate, thought that I would be one of two things. I would either be a professor of English uh, or I would work for the EPA. And um, nearing graduation, I discovered that I was not nearly smart enough to be a professor of English. Um, uh, <laughs> that job that job market is really tight. Uh, and then I went and did a summer uh, interning at the EPA and realized that I couldn't work for that organization either. Hmm. 
Uh, and then, so I got into software and sort of the rest is history. But, um, ever since then, I've been trying to find ways to utilize, uh, those things that I was passionate about as a youth. Um, you know, I've written eight books now, so that takes care of the English major part. Uh, but well, I, I don't, I mean, they're technical books, right? They're not, they're not actually written in English, right? Uh, well, they are written in English. And, and in fact, if you look over my history, I am only ever, if you look at the shelf and uh, you go and you find anything with my name on it, you'll find that I am a co-author. And if you dig a little deeper into the history, I am only ever brought in, in the second half of the authoring process of a given book in order to make it more readable. <laughs> Right. So I, I'm ashamed uh, to admit I don't think I've ever read any of your books. And nor should you have, frankly. All right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe one, but that's it. All right. Uh, uh, but um, uh, the environmental part of that was always sort of in the background. Um, so when Stu and I started the company, we envisioned, uh, you know, a place where he, he and I could, uh, you know, work together and pursue interesting things. When we started to grow the company, we had to be a little bit more specific about what kind of company we wanted to have. And uh, that session, I mean, it was a weekend where he and I sat around saying, okay, well, crap, we're actually going to start hiring people. What do we want the place to be like? Um, we decided that there were a couple of really important principles that we were going to operate on. One of which was, um, we weren't going to have a company that treated anybody we hired in any way that he and I wouldn't want to be treated. So, uh, to the extent possible, we made a very, um, flat organization. And I mean that in every sense of that word, it wasn't particularly hierarchical. Um, we there weren't even titles until it was necessary to have them, which, right. which was in year two. Um, uh, but more importantly, there weren't stratifications of benefits. There were not stratifications of the ability to do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tried to make everybody an exact equal within the company. And, and that meant things like offering everybody ownership in the company. And it meant that, you know, Stu and I didn't have special benefits that other people didn't have. Um, we also wanted a company that did more than simply profit. Now, I should point out to the, to our listeners that I'm a diehard capitalist. I'm a very lefty capitalist, but I'm still a diehard capitalist, and I am in this for the bucks. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not in this for the bucks at the expense of anything else, and I happen to believe that um, sustainable good uh, is done in the world by profit-seeking organizations above and beyond nonprofits. And the reason mm-hmm. I think that is a nonprofit is essentially at the mercy of its donors, and donors uh, are far more fickle than customers. Mm. Um, a donor can, at, on the turn of a dime, decide that you're not providing enough value for their dollar, whereas a customer has something tangible right. that they can refer to uh, as a proxy for their value. So uh, if you want to do good in the world, I think, uh, this is my opinion, that you should do it in a f- profit-seeking way. Um uh, because then you can do more good for longer and hopefully at an accelerating pace. Um, uh, that's my belief. Well, uh, I guess three years ago, we became involved with a company that introduced us to a nonprofit, interestingly, <laughs> called B Corporation or mm-hmm. B Labs. Mm-hmm. And they sponsor a, a designation called the B Corporation. And, and um, right now it's a, it's, a, it's a voluntary designation with no particular benefit that accrues to it other mm-hmm. than you're part of a community, but they are pushing to have it be registered as a federal corporate entity type along the side of LLCs, S-Corps, and C-Corps. Okay. And the B stands for uh, benefit or beneficial in this mm, case. Okay. Uh, basically, when you become a B-Corp, you adopt a couple of extra tenets into your articles of incorporation that 
say that in addition to your shareholders, your stakeholders also include your local community, uh, the environment, you know, uh, uh, and the general good, and that you will take those stakeholders seriously uh, as you make corporate decisions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're part of a community of self-identified people who want to be sustainable, uh, you know, good corporate citizens. And what was fascinating to me is when we got introduced to them, uh, it, I did not think we had any chance of actually making it through the audit process because you have to answer this enormous questionnaire mm -hmm. that breaks down the questions into five general areas like your environmental record and, you know, uh, whether or not, you know, how you work with um, uh, disadvantaged populations, whether or not you broadly apply your, your skills to, you know, various kinds of topics, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we're a software organization. We don't have a fleet of vehicles that we can make you know, run on, on right. you know, gas free. We don't have buildings that we can go and build out of bamboo. And, uh, there's, you know, a whole host of things that we just simply couldn't do. Uh, so I took the, the audit and, uh, and it turns out we scored, um, not just well enough, but, but significantly well enough to, to qualify mm -hmm. almost entirely on the strength of one category and only one category. That one category was how do we treat our employees? Mm. And that we scaled, we, we scored in the top one, you know, top percentile of all of the companies that had gone through it on that vector, not just software companies and not just companies in our size range, mm -hmm. but top percentile across anybody who'd ever applied, which was, you know, several thousand organizations at that point. So, uh, which should tell you a little bit of something about how we went about building the company. Um, uh, and I, you know, hopefully that's still true today. I don't think it's gotten any less, you know, I don't think we've started to treat people worse. No, I mean, uh, I, I mean, I, you know, my background is I, I, <laughs> you talked about, uh, you know, wanting to build something rather than just do stuff. Yeah. Well, I had my own consultancy in between when I was, well, during, I was, well, the time I was working for development and until I came to relevance, I was working for myself, just doing stuff, not, not building a, a team. And this is the first, and I and I got to work at Relevance as a as a contractor for the first, I forget four to six months, somewhere in that yeah. range, before I hired on. And and it's it's the only time I've ever been even tempted to take a full time job in the entire twelve years that I was a consultant. So Aww. I mean, well, it, it's true. Uh, <laughs> so um, so yeah. So I think I think from my perspective, yeah, it's a great place to work. Awesome. Well, and that I mean that's that was the philosophy, and I think that's. You know, that same weekend that Stu and I made those decisions is the exact same moment where we decided that, you know, we would pursue this policy of 20% time uh, right. that, that has led to Fridays. Yep. Uh, originally, it was make your own 20% time, but we realized pretty early that we'd also recruited people who couldn't turn off the client-facing bit mm -hmm. and had a difficult time finding a time to right. have 20% time, which led us to just designating Fridays as our 20% time. So, so I just want to, just since this is one of either the first or one of the first few episodes... Um, you know, it's on our website and everything, but the idea is that on Fridays we work on, uh, uh, stuff that is not client stuff. Maybe you can, maybe you can talk a little bit about Fridays and how they've evolved or, yeah, um, it's, you know, when we started, everybody, uh, we were sort of referent of, um, and even reverent of Google's 20% time. Mm -hmm. Uh, but Google's 20% time always had a very commercial, uh, aspect to it. I mean, yes, some open source has been generated, but generally speaking, Google's 20% time policy is spend 20% of your time noodling around on applications that are interesting to you, and hopefully they'll turn into something like Gmail or whatever. Um, our 20% time originally was was designated as open source Fridays, and that was a bit of a misnomer, and we've since 
nuanced it, but the idea was we really believed strongly in the value of open source and we wanted people to build open source. And uh, we also felt strongly and continue to feel strongly that that our customers actually benefit greatly from our work in open source because and from being able to extract open source from our client projects because it's time they're not paying for necessarily, although it is time they don't have during the week with us, but they get the benefit of that learning. It's a, it's a real way of distilling learning that we've done and you know, then pumping it for free back into other projects. Um, but along the way, uh, open source isn't the only thing. We do uh, have people who spend their Friday time on trying to build new commercial entities. We also have people who spend their Friday time on um, uh, uh, you would say nonprofit work. Um, we've done work with several nonprofits to build software for them, and and you know a few times we've had people just go out and you know do something for a nonprofit. Like uh, we had a group that went out to feed the tigers at the uh, the large cat rescue here in North Carolina <laughs> uh, one Friday. So uh, the key for us has always been um, uh, we have a very strong as uh, the, our listeners might not know we're also a, a fairly um, remote heavy organization right. that we not used to be so about half the company does not work here in the Durham office um, and we've always had a strong culture of allowing people to telecommute you know you want to go and work from the mountains for the week or you want to stay at home for a few days or whatever um, the one day that we tried to convince people not to telecommute is Fridays mm-hmm. um, because you could see where human nature would just you know, hey, well, I'm going to start taking Fridays off or whatever. Right. Uh, um, but more importantly, um, you can telecommute and pair program with somebody from anywhere while you're focused on a client project and 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 have a very strong magnetic pull towards getting specific stuff done. But when you're exploring, uh, I always always found that that the less um, to-do list-ish my day looks, the more likely I am to do better in the company of other people. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I will I will spend more of my energy exploring further and better if there are other people around. And so we've always had this emphasis on, well, yeah, work from wherever you want to work, but Fridays, let's try to be together. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly find that to be true. I, I feel like I do pretty well most Fridays, but there are definitely, there are definitely days where I have, say, four different... Uh, things, uh, you know, maybe two open source projects I want to work on and two technologies I want to explore. Uh, the days where that list gets longer are are definitely the days where I get to the end of it and feel like I I I got less done than the other days. And it's exactly because of what you said. As you as you explore, um, you know, uh, it, it's it's harder to to push hard on things when you've got a, a broader field open in front of you. Particularly if you don't have that, um, you know, we we pair program pretty much exclusively. I mean, almost all of my work is pair programmed. And if, when you don't have that, it, it, it gets a little harder. Yeah. And I mean, for a long time, we didn't have an office for the first five years of the company. We didn't really have an office. Uh, when it was just Stu and I, we worked out of our own homes. And when we started to hire, we were working in Stu's garage, but even then it was, you know, we didn't work all there, all there all together all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as soon as we got an office, um, it was night and day for me. Like I'd, I'd been working out of an office for so long that I'd forgotten the energy that you yeah. get working in an office. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why it took relevance so long to accept that we could be remote and have remote employees right. was this, this just the, that revelation of, man, we just, we get so much more done when we're here together. And it took us a long time to get to the place where we understood how to try to carry over you know, the majority of that feeling, uh, even with having half the company not be here. 
So, so I'm curious then, um, you know, to stay on that kind of the Fridays thing for a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, I know how I do my Fridays as, as a developer. You know, I'm, I'm a technical guy. Um, you know, I'm not the, uh, what did you say? Not CEO, but overlord. Yeah. I forget what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the explorer. Explorer, right. So uh, how, do you, or how are your Fridays different? Like, what do you do on Fridays? So, well, keep in mind that up until um, two years ago, I was a programmer just like everybody else mm -hmm. uh, on projects, and I spent my Fridays doing open source pretty much like, like clockwork. Um, but over the last two years, as my role has become, uh, I won't say entirely non-technical, but uh, <laughs> if I'm really honest with myself, almost entirely non-technical, mm -hmm. um, my Fridays have been a combination of... Um, uh, client relationship management um, uh, and uh, exploration of of ways to punch holes in the you know the standard consultancy model and uh, so as my role has changed over time I mean it used to be that I was the only guy doing sales and so Fridays were often about sales sure uh, uh, and you know those sorts of things but but as as relevance has grown and, and a lot of those roles have been transitioned to other folks. Um, I've spent those a lot of Fridays uh, pushing on what it means to be a consultancy, but also pushing on what it means to have, you know, 38 really incredible people available and sitting around of like mind. What what else can you do with that um, power? Uh, and, and trying to figure out how that fits together. And I think that that's led to some experiments that that uh, were good, and it's led to some experiments that failed. Uh, but the key has always been trying to find survivable experiments. And so a lot of my Fridays were spent, you know, pushing on that small group discussions, uh, uh, going out and talking to other folks, um, and, and, and trying to come up with other ways the team can tack problems. And that, I think that's, if you get to the bottom of what I believe we're about, and I, and, and uh, you were there in February when we had our retreat, mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I believe that we're about uh, leveraging an incredibly powerful group of people to solve problems. So um, I wonder if I can drill down a little bit. I mean, I, and I know I realize that not everything that you're working on you can talk about on a podcast, but sure. um, you, you mentioned that there's some things that you've tried that have been successful and some things that you've tried that, that have been failures. I wonder if you could maybe blow that up a little bit because it sounds really interesting. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I mean, uh, I don't remember exactly when it was, but we invented a product a few years back uh, called Run Code Run. Mm -hmm. Um, which was an online cloud-based uh, continuous integration tool. And the idea was you would subscribe to it and, you know, we'd hook up to your GitHub repository and every commit would, you know, push to our servers and we'd run your tests. And, uh, and the idea, uh, the germ of that idea actually came from a discussion between Stu and um, Rob Sanheim mm -hmm. about, well, what is it that we know how to do or what is it that we're good at that we could leverage into helping our tribe, which is other agile, rubyist uh, at the time, mm -hmm. uh, developers. And um, we settled on a couple of ideas and, and it eventually led to Run Code Run. Um, and Run Code Run was a valiant effort, but we learned two really important lessons as it failed. Um, one of which was it's almost impossible for a consultancy to really build and support a product with, from within the consultancy the pressures on people's time are way too balanced towards the guy who's actually sending you a check every two weeks. Right. Um, the other thing we learned 
is that um, developers are really, really, really shitty at valuing things. <laughs> and there's our explicit <laughs> tag. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> no, uh, go ahead. But yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean, right? We, it's, we, it's really weird, right? I mean, I, I, this happens to me all the time is, oh, well, of course people would do things this way. And then you go run into like normal people and no. <laughs> well, my favorite email of all time that we got, and, and uh, uh, it, it really did lay the whole problem out in, in stark detail. At the time, our, our uh, subscription price was $19 a month. And when you subscribed, you, you, we would set up this box up in Amazon for you, and uh, we'd run everything, uh, you know, sandboxed in there, and uh, everything was great. And it would take it took five minutes, right? You you just we were a post commit hook in GitHub. That's mm-hmm. all it took to subscribe. Um, and uh, we got an email from a guy once that said, uh, you know, look, uh, I think the idea here is great. But 19 bucks a month, come on, for 20 bucks a month, I can set up my own EC2 instance, set up my own uh, running um, stuff and not worry about using your service. Why would I ever use your service? (laughs) And it took all my willpower not to send him an email that says, well, for starters, we're a dollar cheaper than that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But secondarily, I guess your time is not valuable at all. Right. Uh, But it was that. Just the fact that he he didn't actually recognize that 19 was less than 20. <laughs> like, right. I I know that that dollar doesn't mean a whole lot, but it, it we weren't more expensive. <laughs> so uh, that market, but but what was interesting was when that failed, um, we realized a really powerful thing, which was that um, we thought at going into it that the best thing you could do is target other people who were like you, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, we've learned since then that the best thing you can do is actually solve a problem that mm. somebody has. And it doesn't matter how much like you that person is. If you have the ability to solve their problem, then there's an opportunity. Um, uh, we went the other direction. We went for people that, that we could we would hang out with and tried to find a problem that we could solve for them. And and that's not nearly as powerful a, a model. So that's cool. The, the I'm, I want to drill in a little bit more because the, the thing that you said um... – the other thing that you said that that caught me as as interesting was um, was taking a team and being able to leverage that power. Mm-hmm. Like what I mean, uh, so that's cool. We we learned stuff about um, you know what sorts of things we could do, but what are the what are the kind of you know knobs or levers or you know or gear ratios that you found that 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 are you know I have it. You know I've I'm I've got some company. I've got forty people sitting around. They're really good. What do I do to make to, to get at that power increase you were talking about. Well, and I, I think first of all, the the underlying principle there, and, and I've actually given some talks about this, um, is that uh, you we don't give ourselves enough credit in the software industry. Um, being able to write software is one of the biggest levers in the world. Mm. I think that money is still a bigger lever. Mm-hmm. I think that if you have a billion dollars, you can do a lot with a billion dollars, mm-hmm. but Second to having a billion dollars, having the ability to write code lets you project power uh, better than almost anything else on the planet. And what I mean by that is you could go out and swing a hammer uh, for a weekend to help Habitat for Humanity build a house. Um, Using your keyboard for the same amount of time, you could write code that allows Habitat for Humanity to manage the creation of thousands of houses. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which of those two things is more valuable? I don't think that one is more valuable than the other, but the fact that you have the ability to do the second and there's lots of other people who have the ability to do the first kind of calls out to you to say, well, maybe I should deploy that special skill uh, to go off and, and, and do that. And I think one of the ways that we have tapped into that here is we work with a company called Band Together, which is a, it's a, it's a local nonprofit that, that hosts a conference every – not a conference, a concert every year. And uh, and along with that, a silent auction. And all the proceeds are raised and then given in a lump sum to another charity, mm-hmm. which is a fascinating model. Every year they pick a recipient. They host a big concert. They have a big auction. And at the end of the concert, they get up and hand out a giant check for every dollar that was raised. And I, um, I hope it's literally a, a giant check. It is, in fact, a giant check. All right. Good, good. It's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but last year they gave – um, three hundred and thirty-eight thousand dollars to Step Up Ministries. Wow, which is a you know a tremendous amount of money. Yeah. Um. Well, they came to us, uh, or more. I, I should say we've been bouncing off of each other for a while. It's an interesting idea, and I'm a music fan, and um, and I know some of the guys that have been working with it. And you know, I just talked to them about maybe getting involved. You know, coming in as a volunteer or whatever. And once I started to talk to them, I realized that they have this very widely dispersed group of people who were fundraising for them that were communicating via email and a Google Doc. Mm-hmm. And I talked to them about, well, well, you know, could we not streamline that? And we ended up building, um, uh, you know, essentially a very specific CRM uh, for them. Uh, using that CRM, they went from $170,000 raised to $338,000 raised that wow. first year. So we're – that is what I'm getting at, that we can – you know, you can get a bunch of people who have the ability to write software, find some portion of them that can get excited about a specific idea, like helping people throw a giant rock concert. Uh, <laughs> there's enough musicians in this group, in this company, that that was exciting for. No shortage, and, yeah. And then we went off and spent some Fridays building a, a tool that allowed them to go off and do that, and we've been supporting it ever since. But you know, that's the kind of confluence that's exciting to me. Uh, you don't have to get the entire company. To focus on it, what you have in relevance, or what I feel like we have here, is, you know, almost 40 people at a high level of skill. And I, I you know, one of the things that that uh, uh, your your listeners might not have picked up on is that 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 we talked about developmentors hiring practices. And relevances are not exactly more humane. No, that's <laughs> we're, true. We're, we we learned a lot of the same lessons from developmentor and apply a lot of them here. So so we have a almost uniformly high level of skill and. Likewise, passion. I don't think people will get through that process without being passionate about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But then a very, very wide, broad set of interests outside of that. And uh, given that 20% of our time is spent together exploring other things, you can, you, you know, things can drop out of the sky and land. And you know, five people will go, "Ooh, that's fun," mm-hmm. and go off and tackle it. And it's the combination of the collection of skills and talents and passions. And the slack in the system uh, that 20% time represents that enables that. And mm-hmm. I, that's, that's the fascinating part for me. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Well, I, I, wanna, um, I do want to spend a little bit more time talking to you. But um, the, the thing I want to uh, make sure we get to um, is closure because I suspect that um, a, a good chunk of our listeners, a good chunk of the people that are aware of relevance are aware of it because of our work in that space – um, so I wanted to make sure I talked to you specifically about, um, you know, how we came to focus on that, what our plans are, anything that, you know, you want people to know about 
about how we want that space to evolve, how we want to participate in that in that market. Well, I, I, I'll tell the story of how uh, we got to be, um, uh, you know, in the place we're at. Um, uh, I guess this was in late '08 or early '09. I'm trying to remember the exact time frame, but Stu uh, had, um, you know, I, I don't even remember what was the original genesis, but he found closure uh, in, its, in its very early nascent state and got intrigued by it and was sort of noodling around with it. And um, we've had a long-standing relationship with the pragmatic programmers, um, David and Andy, uh, and we've written some books for them. And, and they called us one day and they said, hey, guys, we've got a, a book proposal, a book project proposal for you. Mm-hmm. We would love it if the two of you would each write a book. Um, uh, one of you write a book on closure and one of you write a book on fan and we'll publish them as a sort of, uh, you know, uh, they were they were going to start, and I think the idea was some sort of like, you know, competing books on a similar topic by people who know each other, kind of. I don't even a, know what fan is. So fan was an early uh, functional language okay. targeting .NET. Oh, okay. Uh, sort of an F sharpish kind wow, of thing. Wow, I'm surprised I never heard of that. I must have. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I spent the 12 years I was an independent consultant. I was in the .NET space for most of that. And pretty interested in, wow, okay, all right, go ahead, yeah. So, so uh, we looked at it, and Stu said, well, I've been noodling around with Clojure, so I'll do that. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll go take a look at Fan. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Fan for about two days, and then we called them back and said, we're not doing this. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, the, uh, you know, that sort of, that conversation sort of petered out. But then they called back and said, well, why don't you write just the Clojure book? And mm-hmm. he was like, yeah, I'm all over that. So... Uh, he really um, dug in and you know got to know Rich uh, Hickey and um, became essentially the number two committer in closure while he was writing the book. Yep. And um, we've been off to the races ever since. Yep. And, and so what I would say about that from Relevance's perspective is that um, uh, when Relevance got started, we were Java and .NET programmers. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were at Developmentor, we were um, C++ and VB programmers. And, and uh, when we left, we were like, you know what? We one of the reasons we left is we want to go work in in uh, in more modern technologies and 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 Java and and um, .NET were were where we wanted to be. And along the way, we um, you know we'd always sort of uh, noodled around with Ruby, but uh, you know around the time Rails became introduced, and uh, I think we we started using Rails at 0.61 or whatever it was, and uh, uh, so we were really early adopters there, but it was it, it really spoke to us from a developer perspective. Um, it certainly had its flaws then and now as a deployment platform, um, but uh, it's certainly uh, more than adequate enough uh, for a huge spectrum of applications. And the developer experience was just so far and away um, superior in our minds to what we were experiencing in, in Java and .NET at the time that we just sort of really ran with it and uh, we were able to tackle some very interesting work, and, it, and it's what led to our growth. I mean, we were, as a Java and a .NET shop, we were two people. Mm-hmm. As a Ruby and Rails shop, we grew to 40 people. So right. um, it, there's no question that it's been great, and, and it will continue to be great, and it's still our primary focus as a consultancy, and, mm-hmm. and then there's, there's, there's no end in sight to that, and we're still very enthusiastic about that. Um, but Clojure represents another opportunity to take another bite at the apple, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, getting in, 
uh, on Ruby and Rails really early meant that we could be part of the early community and, you know, to whatever small degree at that time, part of the shaping of how things went. Um, you know, we did a lot of speaking and writing in those early days, uh, and, and it was exciting, but it also meant that it was growth, right? It was, it was growth both internally as, as people, but as a company as well. And that was all great. Um, Clojure has a lot going for it. Um, uh, the, the tenets that, that it was built on due to Rich's experience have a lot to be said for them, and we believe strongly in them, and we believe that they are extensions of, of what took us down the Ruby and the Rails path in the first place. Um, simplicity, the focus on developer power and trusting the developer, um, uh, and I would say uh, even more to the point, the, the, the meta-programming capabilities of Clojure, uh, you know, outstrip even that of Ruby, and, and it's you know things like that 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 and and the fact that we were in really early and we could help shape the direction of it and and you know that's that's just a fun place to be yeah. so you know we really believe strongly that closure has uh, a huge future for developers of all shapes and sizes that uh there are application development areas that exist today that closure is very well suited for there are developers that it would be a very great tool for but we also believe that it is the kind of tool that will create new kinds of space for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be applications and, and, and application architectures and types of, of development that um, are created or at least modified in response to closure. And uh, it can never hurt to be uh, slightly diversified. And so it feels better than ever to be a consultancy that focuses on Ruby and closure mm-hmm. uh, because that's just more to learn and more growth to have. And, and so uh, I don't see either of those things slowing down for us uh, for a long time. Yeah, and we've actually had projects that have involved both, which is pretty cool too. Yep. Um, yeah, that's great. I mean, and I think to your point about, uh, about you know, uh, closure having new places to go, I think uh, one of the interesting areas there is, uh, is closure script, obviously a whole new kind of, um, platform, if you will, for 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 uh, for closure to expand into, and and we'll be talking more about that on the podcast in the next few episodes. I'm pretty awesome. sure got a got a few things lined up there. So, um, well, I, I think I mean, this has been great, Justin. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, Absolutely, definitely want to have you back at some point too to kind of follow up, see where see how things have been going. Um, you know, uh, maybe I'm sure you'll have more stories to tell us. And in fact, I know you have a great story about. Um, Going to a Metallica concert that we didn't get to today, but we'll we'll save that one for next time. <laughs> I do have I do have a great one about that. But yeah, yeah you you and I need to talk, uh, sir, about uh, the playlist for the summer because uh, oh yeah, uh, the the lead-in song is one of the ones uh, on the playlist for me. So okay, so you're you're referring to the the big party that we always go to every year where there's a lot of a lot of jamming and everything. Absolutely, and if and if you're not going to play bass on Jet City Woman, I'll be very disappointed. I will I will do my best. I'm. Uh, yeah, I'll do my best. That'd be that'd be a lot of fun. Um, but this is good. We're talking about music because I have the other of the two most important questions that we are going to talk about, which is um, what should we play on the outro here? <laughs> so, uh, well, I'll, I will actually. I am in the process of learning Jet City Woman on mm-hmm. the guitar. Okay. So that was our intro. Yep. I am also in the process of learning Sultans of Swing. Okay. Uh, on the guitar so that can be our outro alright very good people are probably listening to that even now um, you know uh, so thanks again Justin really appreciate the time it was a lot of fun um, and we will we will have you back thanks again on. I can't wait to listen to the entire series 
Yes, me, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched actually. I think it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Like I said, there's just so many fascinating people that we work with and interact with that I, I feel like there's no end of, of people to talk to and have just great conversations. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well have a good one and we will talk to you next time. Awesome. All right, bye. Bye.